In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. <laughs> I want to tell you about stone frigates, which are, um, honestly, I don't even know where to start with this one. Uh, I've been doing a podcast focused on the silliest and most ridiculous things from history for five and a half years, and I was really, really starting to think that I'd seen it all, Um, especially in the realm of naval history. We've obviously done so much of that over the years, as the the half-house history old guard will well and truly know, but then... Alert listener Jackson Norton gets in touch to tell me that, get this, right, that in 1804, during the Napoleonic Wars, the British Royal Navy commissioned an entire island as a ship, calling it HMS Diamond Rock. Now, um, HMS, right, the HMS in HMS Diamond Rock, it stands for, for his or her Majesty's Ship, but the Diamond Rock was not a ship, it was an actual factual Island, a great big tall lump of rock sticking out of the sea near the Caribbean island of Martinique. But apparently it didn't matter that it wasn't a ship because it was registered as a ship, it was crewed as a ship, and then captured as a ship. And truly unbelievably, this began a tradition of commissioning things that aren't ships as ships, a a tradition that lasts to this very day. Buckle up, my friends, because this is an absolutely wild one. Thanks, Jackson, so very much for letting me know about this story. I had no idea this was something that used to happen in history, let alone the fact that it's something that still happens today. So let's get into it here. Uh, long-term fans of half Fast history will be very glad that we are heading back to uh, an old core competency of ours, getting into some ridiculous naval history here. In 1803, the British Royal Navy was sent to blockade French ports on the island of Martinique, which is, as I say, in the in the Caribbean. And after arriving, Commodore Sir Samuel Hood, he quickly realised the strategic value of this island, Diamond Rock, in controlling Martinique's surrounding waters. And so, very sensibly, he landed on and fortified this island. He established little headquarters for some crew to be set up in. Uh, and then deployed cannons all around the island at the base, poking out of little caves on the on the sides of the rock, even hoisting some cannons all the way to the top of the island, right, 175 metres above sea level. 
And this resulted in what was effectively a makeshift fortress. Not only was it very strategically valuable, um, the island also grew a plant called Kalaloo, a bit like spinach, it looks truly disgusting, um, and a type of long grass that could be woven into uh, sensibly sun-smart hats for the sailors that lived there. So the sailors on this island, they're having a, they're having a great time, right? They're well-fed, uh, they're avoiding scurvy with their Kalaloo, they're also keeping the sun off their heads with their grass hats. And on top of that, they can take pot shots from the top of the island at any French ships that go past. So what fun for them. However, as it turns out, the Royal Navy was not, strictly speaking, allowed to do this. Now, you might think, well, what have they done? What, what, what rules have they broken here? Well, apparently, there was a rule on the books when it came to the Royal Navy's affairs that said that it was not allowed to rule over an area of land. Now, I don't know why this rule was in place. Maybe so the sailors wouldn't get ideas above their station and fashion themselves into a rudimentary East India Company. Episodes, I don't know, probably 300 and something. I'll get to it eventually. Get across it when I do. But whatever the reason, right, the fact remains the Royal Navy was not allowed to establish itself on land. And it seems that this rule was taken really and very weirdly seriously. Um, for instance, until the late 19th century, Royal Navy facilities were usually housed in hulks, right, in ships that still floated but couldn't sail. Um, these hulks would be repurposed as barracks or training facilities or depots or whatever, all sorts of buildings that you'd expect a military branch to need, except that they're all afloat. They were housed in these hulks, which would be more or less permanently moored in a harbour, rather than actually being, you know, a harbour building on the side of the water ashore. No, they would be afloat on these uh, on these on these vessels. But I said permanently, more or less. No, actually, I should correct myself there because they weren't permanent at all um, from from one point of view. Because as time passed, as the condition of these hulks deteriorated, they would be swapped out for other newer hulks. Except, right? This is unbelievable. The new hulks, when they brought them in, would be renamed to match the old hulks that were being fully decommissioned. Actual, literal ships of Theseus here. So, for instance, right, the gunnery training school in the British harbour of Portsmouth, it was known as HMS Excellent. It was a hulk that was taken out of active service, uh, made into, as I say, this floating gunnery school um, uh, moored at Portsmouth, and it was it was used by by people training to become gunners. But it was known as HMS Excellent between 1830 and 1890, despite being, literally speaking, three different vessels. The school was moved between three different hulks between 1830 and 1890, and every time they moved the school over to a new vessel, they renamed the new hulk in which it was housed. So, as as ridiculous as all of this sounds, this is this is actually how the Royal Navy did its business. For most of the 19th century, the Royal Navy's facilities were all, by law, waterborne. I don't know if the first Lord of the Admiralty had to sit in a bathtub during government meetings, but look, whatever the case was... The Royal Navy's personnel and facilities were, as I say, all afloat at all times. And this seems to have been a rule that was very strictly adhered to by the Navy. Now, look, there were there were legal reasons for this having having happened. Um, sailors, strictly speaking, were only under the, under the authority of certain aspects of naval or maritime law when they were aboard a vessel. 
uh, and so therefore they had to be assigned to an active on a ship, not anything based on land, because then they wouldn't be legally subject to the authority of the Royal Navy. So to bring this story back to Diamond Rock uh, and to explain the even more ridiculous direction things went in with the Royal Navy, we return now to 1804, a few months after Hood had been sent off to Martinique. Now, Hood knows as well as anyone that he is not allowed, technically speaking, to deploy men ashore as he has uh, fortifying and, and stationing sailors on this island is in breach of Navy rules and regulations. So what does he do to get around this? This is not a joke. This is real, actual history. On the 7th of February, 1804, Commander Sir Samuel Hood commissioned Diamond Rock, a basalt island in the Caribbean, as a ship as a sloop of war for the British Royal Navy. Despite being nothing more than a landmass sticking out of the sea, it was, on all levels except physical, a ship. And this meant that, for instance, it meant that other Royal Navy ships had to salute it as they sailed by, just as if it were another actual factual ship. But all the same... The HMS Diamond Rock, it was instrumental in disrupting French shipping to Martinique. Any French ship foolish enough to come close uh, to this ship, I guess, um, it would uh, receive express deliveries of red-hot cannonballs completely free of charge. And so uh, the French kept a wide berth, which usually made entering the nearby ports almost impossible due to the strong winds and currents that surrounded the island. So eventually the, the French were forced to act with their Spanish allies. They sent no fewer than 16 ships to capture HMS Diamond Rock, which had a slight disadvantage in this battle due to a certain lack of manoeuvrability. But all the same, the British had a formidable defensive position on top of the rock and the French essentially had to lay siege to this ship, uh, waiting for the British to run out of water and ammunition eventually. The British surrendered, uh, they were taken prisoner, and then after uh, returning to friendly territory in Barbados, the bloke that uh, Hood had left in charge of Diamond Rock, a fellow named Commander James Wilkes Morris, he was court-martialed for having let a ship, a ship, fall into enemy hands. Now, this was... Um, this was a mandatory process for any captain that lost a Royal Navy ship... And again, goes to show just how seriously the British took this lump of rock as having been commissioned as a ship. Now, Morris was acquitted. His crew all came to his uh, his defence at the trial. They testified that he had jolly well gone down swinging against those blasted French bastards. But all the same, uh, Diamond Rock, it changed hands. It was, uh, it was captured and held by the French until later on in 1809, it was then recaptured, uh, brought back into, uh, brought back into the fold as a proud, uh, vessel of the Royal Navy when, uh, as I say, in 18, 1809, the British, uh, finally recaptured it off the French. It's now a, um, it's now part of the, obviously, island of Martinique, which is under, under the authority of the French. So I guess the French had the last laugh there. They don't treat it like a ship as far as I know, but the British certainly did. And, after Diamond Rock was commissioned and very seriously treated like a ship, this set a precedent in the Royal Navy, a precedent that spread throughout not just the British Royal Navy, but other British-influenced navies and is still around today. Even right now, in the 21st century, there are stone frigates, as they're called. This is the nickname that is given to areas of land that have been commissioned by navies to serve as ships. So 
Earlier on, right, I mentioned all those hulks, right? I, to, I brought that up to illustrate how the Royal Navy had to adhere to its policy of not birthing sailors on shore. Well, that changed in the wake of HMS Diamond Rock because during the back half of the 19th century, the British Royal Navy actually began to berth sailors on shore by doing the very same thing they'd done with Diamond Rock in Martinique by commissioning areas of land as ships. Realising that it was just a little bit easier to house all of their sailors on land and have all of their military buildings be actual buildings, um, the Royal Navy began the process of freeing themselves from the logistical nightmares of having entire military facilities housed in hulks by creating more and more stone frigates. There are countless examples of them, right? Like um, in 1880, an engineer, uh, engineering college aboard the old HMS Marlborough, it was uh, it was moved ashore in Portsmouth. Or in 1891, the, gunner, the gunnery school I mentioned earlier, right, HMS Excellent, it was re-established on an island called Whale Island. Except the best part about these relocations, right, the best part about these facilities being moved on land and, and still being treated like ships, even after they were moved on shore, they kept their ship names. Remember how I said the, the hulks would come and go, but the name would stay the same? Well, this principle was applied to the stone frigates as well as they went on shore. So even when HMS Marlborough stopped being a floating hulk and became, you know, a series of buildings on land, these buildings were still referred to as the HMS Marlborough because it was still a ship after all, as far as the Royal Navy was concerned, just not a very quick or manoeuvrable one, I suppose. And it was the same with the HMS Excellent and more or less every single other stone frigate across the British Empire. In Bermuda, for instance, right, an entire dockyard was known as the HMS Malabar because it started off as a ship of that name before moving ashore as a stone frigate and expanding to become, as I say, an entire dockyard. And incredibly, somehow... This madness has continued unabated into the modern era here today in the 21st century. This policy of shipifying areas of land and turning them into stone frigates is alive and well. The British Royal Navy apparently can't ever let a building just be a building and so still has a huge number of stone frigates, land-based establishments that are considered to be by them very seriously ships with the prefix HMS and everything. There are tons of them, and, and these aren't the exceptions to the rule. Naval bases, air stations, training facilities, administrative centres, reserve buildings. These are all, again, as far as the Royal Navy is concerned, they're all ships. Now, more or less every definition that I could find talks about how ships are vessels that travel across water. But no, not according to the Royal Navy, who, based on their history, would think, You'd think they'd know a thing or two about what a ship is, but they are very ready to be quite accommodating with what the definition of a ship is, as it turns out. A ship can be anything if you try hard enough. A dockyard, some buildings, or even just a big rock in the ocean. And it gets better, because it's not just the British who perpetuate this lunacy either. The Canadians have a stone frigate, and you'll never guess what it's called. It is called... The HMCS Stone Frigate, very imaginative. It's found in Kingston, Ontario. It still serves as a military academy even today. 
But across the ditch, this is fantastic, the Kiwis have taken it even further with the HMNZS Matatawa, right, which is a stone frigate made of people. It is the name given to an operational support unit, not even the buildings that they work in, the actual unit itself. So apparently people can be a ship as well. Get one bloke there holding a bed sheet and a bloody T-pose standing and all the others while they try to swim. Yep, it's a ship. No worries at all. However, I do have to admit, before we tee off at the Kiwis too heavily here, I will uh, I will point out to you that uh, right here in Australia, we have stone frigates as well. And there is one that all the Sydney-siders listening have probably driven past because you can see it from the Sydney Harbour Bridge. I, I, I assume that everyone in Sydney drives across the bridge every day, right? I mean, they're so bloody proud of the damn thing they must do. But whatever the case, uh, in 1962 on Sydney's lower North Shore, the Royal Australian Navy commissioned a new base, a new naval base, three buildings, two wharves, and called it the HMAS Waterhen. Now, HMAS here stands for, as you can probably guess, His Majesty's Australian Ship, but... Like every other stone frigate on the face of the earth, HMAS Waterhen is decidedly not a ship. But then again, if the uh, if the Royal Australian Navy is going to insist upon the point that HMAS Waterhen is a ship, I eh, I'm not sure if I want to pick a fight with them over it. Um, because in addition to this stone frigate that they have, um, they also have eight actual real frigates with guns and everything and look while i'm a pretty good swimmer i don't really fancy my chances in that situation deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.